You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. So as we get into God's Word this morning, we're in Ezekiel 17 today. Um, I'll get you to turn there in just a moment, but before we get into God's Word, we need to get into His presence and pray. Father, thank You for this Word. Thank You for the book of Ezekiel. A complicated book, we admit. scary book at times, we admit. A, A complicated book that causes us, Lord, to kind of wonder sometimes what is its meaning. And I think part of that is maybe because as we normally read our Bibles, we're just normally just reading them and we're not taking the time to, and because it's a big, thick book, we don't have a lot of time to dig into it at times. But Lord, today we do. Today we have a chance to be able to get into each chapter and pull out the things that you are wanting to speak to your people even today about. And so Lord, we posture ourselves before you in an attitude of humility Because, Lord, today we're going to need it. We're going to need humility in order to hear your voice. And so, Lord, speak to us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. And God's people said, amen. All right, I want you to take your Bibles. I want you to do something with me. Maybe grab a pew Bible if you don't have one here. But turn to Ezekiel 17. Ezekiel chapter 17. For some of you, it's... On page 586, and I think the other one is 690 or something like that in the Pew Bibles. Uh, So you can turn with us there. But as you get your hand in there and you keep a finger in that chapter, and I want you to kind of just finger through the other chapters from chapter 17 to 24. And as you do that, you'll see certain chapter or section headings, things like two eagles and a vine. Uh, The one who sins will die. A lament over Israel's princes and rebellion, rebellious Israel purged. There's a lot of content in those those chapters, and that's why we need to get you to go ahead of us each week and read those chapters so that as we come here today, you won't miss any of the details because we just won't have time in order to get through this book in three months to be able to get to all the content. So please read through uh, the the chapters. Get to 25 to 32 for next week, uh, and that will help us get ahead of it all. But there's also a challenge in that sometimes those, those section headings aren't really all that appealing to us. Like, we read them and we go, well, what does that really have to mean? Compared to, say, like a New York Times best-selling book like Atomic Habits. Anybody read that? Not a bad book, Atomic Habits, if you get a chance to read it. And this, this is some of the chapter headings for it. How to build better habits for, for, with four simple rules. The other one is how to make habits irresistible. Another one, the role of family and friends in shaping habits. Really kind of compelling, hey, compared to those Ezekiel chapter headings? Well, this is one of the reasons that people kind of get put off reading Old Testament prophets. It just seems to be so much work in order to pull anything out of it that seems relevant to our lives today. But it will take a little bit of work for us. But there's still so much relevant content in here that you don't want to skip over the prophets. Not only are there missing, or not only would you be missing a lot of Israel's history, but you would miss out on how it is important for us today. And it is. So, chapter 17. We'll just read verses 1 to 10 for now. Okay, you there? The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. 
Set forth an allegory and tell it to the Israelites as a parable. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. A great eagle with powerful wings, long feathers, and a full plumage of varied colors came to Lebanon, taking hold of the top of the cedar. He broke off its topmost shoot and carried it away to the land of merchants, where he planted it in a city of traders. He took one of the seedlings of the land and put it in fertile soil. He planted it like a willow by an abundant water, and it sprouted and became a low, spreading vine. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots remained under it. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out leafy boughs. But there was another great eagle with powerful wings and full plumage. The vine now sent out its shoots toward him, and from him and from the plot where it was planted and stretched out its branches to him for water. It had been planted in good soil by abundant water so that it would produce branches, bear fruit, and become a splendid vine. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Will it thrive? Will it be uprooted and stripped of its fruit so that it withers? All its new growth will wither. It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it up by the roots. It has been planted, but, it will, but will it thrive? Will it not wither completely when the east wind strikes? <clears throat> wither away uh, in the plot where it grew. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Chapter 17 begins by the Lord telling Ezekiel to tell the Israelites an allegory. King James says a riddle, and it is a riddle, but it, it's supposed to be told like a parable. Once again, the northern kingdom is no more. So God is referring here to the southern kingdom of Judah as the Israelites. As we learned last week, Judah had become even more wicked than the northern kingdom, even more wicked than Sodom and Gomorrah. That's quite a testament, isn't it? <clears throat> the parable describes the events between the time of King Jehoiachin's exile out of Jerusalem to Babylon in 597 BC when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, uh, had uh, Zedekiah, the puppet king of Judah, installed. And it was more complicated time as Zedekiah ended up revolting against Babylon because he made a deal with Egypt. And that led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. Part of the riddle here in chapter 17, verses 1 to 10, includes some messianic language of a branch, which is a certain messianic expression that you and I would be familiar with. This is how the interpretation of the riddle goes. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who is the first eagle, verse 1, came to Jerusalem and removed its king, Jehoiachin, from Judah, who is described here as the topmost, uh, topmost shoot of the cedar. <clears throat> Sorry, I got this. <laughs> Jehoiachin is taken to Babylon, the city of traders in the land of uh, merchants. Meanwhile, uh, Nebuchadnezzar installed another member of the royal throne of David to the throne of Jerusalem, Zedekiah who is described as the seedling of the land or a will, and a willow, verse 5. And it's expected of him to remain submissive to Nebuchadnezzar. That's why it is referred, he's referred to as a low-spreading vine whose branches turn toward Nebuchadnezzar or toward the eagle. Except Zedekiah redirects his alliance, saying that he turned its branches and its roots toward Egypt, the other great eagle. 
Of course, this angers Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon. Now, the meaning of this riddle for the Israelites is very well understood by them, and we see it in, in, uh, chapter, in verses uh, 11 to 21. <clears throat> and we learn, basically, that Zedekiah is an idiot. He builds this relationship with Egypt. He's formed this alliance, and by doing so, he breaks a covenant that he made with Nebuchadnezzar, except, as we learn in verse 16, God isn't happy with Zedekiah either over this. His submission to Nebuchadnezzar was the only thing keeping Jerusalem and uh, remaining alive in this time. Look at verse 16 to 19. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, he shall die in Babylon, in the land of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised and whose treaty he broke. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and a great horde, will be of no help to him in war. When ramps are built and siege works erected, remember chapter 1 and chapter 2? <clears throat> and siege works are, are, are built, um, erected to destroy many lives. He despised the oath by breaking the covenant because he had given his hand in pledge and yet did all these things he, he shall not escape. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. As surely I live, I will repay him for despising my oath and breaking my covenant. <clears throat> Understand that this covenant that Yahweh is speaking of here is the political covenant that was built between Zedekiah and Nebuchadnezzar. It's not about the ancient covenant that God had with his people Israel from long before, at least not directly. But there is a bit of a tie here. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's quite a few books over to your left. <clears throat> 2 Chronicles 36, verses 12 to 14. <clears throat> he did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, speaking of Zedekiah, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. So Ezekiel 17 is about Zedekiah breaking the deal that he had made with Nebuchadnezzar, an oath that he made in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> it was very common in the ancient Near East that people, when they're entering into covenants, they would, in, they would invoke the name of their deity in order to be a witness to the deal, so to speak. So Yahweh was angry with Zedekiah for essentially ruining his reputation among the nations by turning to the Egyptians and turning his back on the covenant that he made on oath to the Lord for, uh, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. That's breaking command number three of the Ten Commandments. In fact, Zedekiah broke all three of the first commandments very badly. He also refused to heed the prophet Jeremiah's warnings, and his hard heart led him to cause Israel to practice even more idolatry and to defile the temple of the Lord's presence. Taking the name of the Lord in vain isn't just saying, Oh my God. Although we should probably, if we do consider the Lord's name as holy, we probably shouldn't use his name loosely in that way, like a curse word or as an expression of surprise or frustration. 
Taking the name of the Lord in vain is more about invoking the Lord, the name of the Lord, as a guarantee of a promise. Such as saying, I swear to God I will do this or that. The Lord takes those promises very seriously because his name is involved. And Zedekiah broke his oath in this name, oath. Now, the last part of chapter 17 is quite interesting to us as New Covenant believers. Turn to verse 22 to 24. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel I will plant it and it will produce branches and bear fruit and will become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make, low, uh, and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. So, I, the Lord, have spoken. God is swearing by his own name that he will bring this about. And he can do that because his name is the highest name above all names. He has no one else to appeal to. This lofty, or this planting of the most, the, uh, the topmost shoot of, on a high lofty mountain is describing the replanting of the Davidic line on Mount Zion or near Mount Zion. <clears throat> you might be more familiar with branch or vine terminology found elsewhere in the Bible, especially in the New Testament under the New Covenant. Of course, the Sovereign Lord is referring here to the Messiah. The, I have water. Sorry. I'm, thanks. It's just not helping. I wish it did. It's bothering everybody, isn't it? It's bothering me. Um, Yeah, so it's referring to the Messiah, uh, finding its refuge, everyone finding its refuge in him as the God of the nations under his kingdom reign. This is about one day Messiah asserting his global sovereignty and reclaiming the nations. It's really a powerful image. The the mountain heights of Israel is a clear reference to Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. Yahweh will not forget his covenant with David, if you remember back in 2 Samuel 7, to keep his throne alive forever. Even after Solomon leads his people into idolatry and the kingdom splits into two, north and south, and the succeeding kings, except for a few, were all bad, all very bad because they led Israel deeper and deeper into idolatry and sin and further away from the Lord. The dynasty would survive though. It would even survive the exile. And even after all the likes of the King Zedekiah, the last of the kings of the house of David, uh, the city, though it will be destroyed, will be renewed one day. Yahweh will be faithful. He will restore the Davidic throne when his Messiah, which we know is Jesus, comes. And he swears it by his holy name. Amen? Therefore, there's a few overarching principles that we can learn from this chapter. First of all, be thankful. And never forget God's faithfulness. And second of all, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. So honor your commitments and consider the name of the Lord holy. Let's look at chapters 18 to 20 now. In a nutshell, these three chapters we see the Israelites trying to place the blame of their sin on their ancestors. Look at verse 1 to 4, 18, 1 to 4. 
<clears throat> the word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me, the parents as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. Yahweh makes it very clear that people do not inherit righteousness nor wickedness from their forefathers. Instead, each individual is responsible for their own sin. That's what he says in verse 4. The one who sins is the one who dies. But there's hope in verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all their sins that they have committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. And then the Lord asks another question, a question that I think most people ask when they read the Old Testament, especially the prophets, because there's some, you know, there's some real tough, cruel-sounding stuff in this testament of ours. Verse 25 says, Yet you say, <clears throat> this is the Lord saying, You say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear you Israelites, is my way unjust? What would you say to that question if the Lord were to ask? When you read of all the death and destruction that the Lord brings up in this book towards even his own people, what would you say? Is he just or unjust? And don't tell me that hasn't crossed your mind from time to time while reading the book. Well, this is what the sovereign Lord says. But before I read it, can I just point out that this is the sovereign Lord who is acting in these ways and now asking the question. So if the Lord is the Lord, the sovereign of the universe, what right does he have to act in this way? Every, act, every right. Listen to verse 25. <clears throat> is it not your ways that are unjust, the Lord says? If a righteous person turns from the, their righteousness and commits sin, they will die for it. Because of the sin they have committed, they will die. But if a wicked, wicked person turns away from the wickedness they have committed and does what is right and just, they will save their life. Because they consider all the offenses they have committed and turn away from them, that person will surely live. They will not die. Yet the Israelites say the way of the Lord is not just. Are my, ways, are my ways unjust, people of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get your new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord, repent and live. I don't think that needs much commentary, does it? I'm sure this won't satisfy anyone who's wanting to kind of still live their life by their own ambitions and their own passions. But for the Christian, it should make a difference. You have people in your life network, I'm sure, that have tried to give you this excuse for their own sin and their own way of uh, for rejecting God's ways but it's not you that they have to give account to is it <clears throat> it's the Lord the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth will either be their judge or their savior and Yahweh's justification goes for Israel's individual accountability 
for its royal accountability, its national accountability. But in each segment of their society, God will graciously forgive and restore them if she turns to them, turns to him. And again, like last week, the Lord makes it very clear why all of this is happening by repeating the same phrase six times in these chapters. He says, I will do these things, and then you will know that I am the Lord. And that brings us back to the question that we asked last week, if you remember it. What things are happening in your life right now that God could be trying to get your attention with? What things are happening? What tough things, what hardships are happening right now that God could be getting your attention with? So the overlapping, the overarching principles to learn from these three chapters is this. God is sovereign over all history. He is sovereign over everything. Each person is accountable for their own sin. Can't blame it on others. A person cannot blame others for his or her own disobedience. And lastly, God is always ready to receive a repentant sinner. Always. Let's look at chapters 21 to 24 now. <clears throat> in a nutshell, these next four chapters, we see Yahweh finally acting out in judgment against his people. And we see the downfall of Jerusalem and its temple in 586 B.C. After all the warnings of the prophets... Because they refused to repent and they kept violating their covenants and they engaged in rampant idolatry, Yahweh is going to act now. Chapter 21, we see as a section heading, God uses Babylon as a sword of judgment. God's agent of judgment will be the Babylonians. Chapters 22 to 23, Jerusalem's judgment has been a long time in coming. Chapter 22 is more of the same with the reason given by Yahweh. When you have been defiled in, my, in the eyes of the nations, then you will know that I am the Lord. And then chapter, three, chapter 23 lets us in on the long-standing sin of Israel and its idolatry, that it's been happening for a long time. This isn't a new thing for Israel. They've been like this all the way back, he says, since Egypt, since before Moses in the Exodus. They were worshiping idols that were in the land of Egypt. Could it be that that's maybe why they built a golden calf in, while they were in the wilderness? Because that was something they might have been familiar with from worship in, in Egypt. That's how the Egyptians did it. Like in chapter 16, chapter 23 is a very lengthy chapter and it has some sexual themes to it. Its lewd descriptions are meant to shock for sure. But it's also meant to be a reflection on Israel's spiritual adultery. Comparing her to a prostitute. But much of the idolatry also involved lewd sexual practices too. And the Lord gives Ezekiel a parable about two sisters. Ohala, uh, which is really Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel. The one that's no more, if you remember. And Aholaba, who, which really is the southern kingdom of Judah in which, the, in which Jerusalem and the temple are in. According to commentator Dr. Michael Heiser... Uh, Ohala and Ohalaba uh, each begin with three consonants from the Hebrew language and they spell the word tent. Ohala means her tent, representing Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel. Aholaba means my tent is in her, representing Jerusalem and the temple being in her. This idea of a tent is Israel's history. It's within it. 
And this would have been very familiar language to any Israelite who knew what Israelite worship was all about. Since the days of Moses, the dwelling place of Yahweh was a tabernacle, a tent, literally, a tent of meeting. And when Solomon built the Lord's temple, just, they just moved everything from the tabernacle, from the, from the holy place and the most holy place, into the temple, into the same places. So all the furnishings, all the curtains, all the, the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim, all just got transferred from the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, to the temple. And in the temple, in the most holy place, the curtains in there formed a tent. So describing the temple, specifically the sanctuary as a tent, makes sense as Ohalaba means my tent is in her, meaning the temple is in Jerusalem. My presence where I meet with my people is there. So much of this tent language carries over into the New Testament as well. The new covenant imagery when, when God reclaims the nations into what we call the church. The big tent and bringing back into power God's Davidic throne through Jesus. It, it turn to Acts chapter 15. We get a, an image of this as a church is just being born. Acts chapter 15 verses 13 to 18. Brothers, James says, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Remember, Israel had pagan roots in Abraham. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. 2 Samuel 7 and, and Amos 9, 11 give us this account. And it is written, he says, verse 16, After this, I will, rebuild, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Sounds a lot like Ezekiel here, doesn't it? And that they may know that I am the Lord. Even as the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things? Things known from long ago. <clears throat> God doesn't miss a detail. I love it. He always brings it back. That's the great future hope in the midst of judgment for Israel. And Ezekiel was hoping they'd get all that. But let's get back to the real shocker in chapter 23. 23, verse 35. Chapter 23, verse 35. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Since you have forgotten me and turned your back on me, you must bear the consequences of your lewdness and prostitution. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ohala? And Oholaba, then confront them with their detestable practices, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. They committed adultery with their idols. They even sacrificed their children, whom they bore to me, as food for them. They have also done this to me. At the same time, they defiled my sanctuary and, de and desecrated my Sabbaths. On the very day they sacrificed their children to idols, they entered my sanctuary and desecrated it. That is what they did in my house. This is why Israel was under such severe judgment. You know, when you just casually read through the prophets like Ezekiel, <clears throat> you're probably going to come away thinking, wow, the Old Testament's sure full of a lot of death and destruction. But look at why God had to judge them. 
with death and destruction. Israel wasn't just lewd sexually. Her idolatry involved child sacrifice. And after they did the deed, they just went into the Lord's temple to worship the Lord as if nothing had happened. Nothing was different. And so they defiled the holy temple of the presence of the Lord by doing these things. I know we think, how awful. And it is, isn't it? But friends, according to the World Health Organization, every year, 73 million induced abortions take place worldwide. That's approximately 200,000 abortions per day. The WHO also claims that 3 out of 10, that's 29% of all pregnancies, end in an induced abortion. In 2013, a study and article published under the license of Biomed Central Limited, the reasons people seek abortions in the U.S., at least, not, maybe not necessarily in Canada, but probably the same, fell under one of two reasons in a list of reasons given. Some claimed financial circumstances were unfavorable at the time. Some claimed the pregnancy was bad timing. Some claimed that there were partner-related reasons. Some believed it would negatively impact their quality of life. Some claimed emotional and mental health reasons. Others claimed just health-related reasons to end their pregnancies. I have no doubt that having a pregnancy that is unwanted, unexpected, would be extremely stressful in those circumstances. To think about bringing a baby into the world at that time. But you know, compared to ending a human life, it makes the, those reasons at least make the majority of abortions just a form of birth control. That means that children are being sacrificed in our world every day. And I say sacrifice because the majority of those abortions happen among unmarried women, at, at least in the West, because the baby is an unwanted inconvenience. Nothing more. They want their sexual activity without the consequences and responsibility of it. Now, the church owns some, some guilt in all of that, too. Where's the church for these women who are experiencing these crises of moments and even faith? Where are they to support these mums who are wondering what to do because they don't have any other support system, perhaps? For sure, you watch television and you see some of the, the, the rallies that take place and some, some women are just intentionally being using abortion as a form of birth control. But what about those poor women who are seeking and needing help but can't find it in any other way? The church owns some guilt in this. So how long will God let our world continue to reject its commands over sexuality? And instead, how long will we just continue to please the cravings of our flesh? You know, the world scoffs <clears throat> at the church's insistence on abstinence and faithfulness. And instead of seeking to crave, uh, gratify the cravings of our flesh, instead to enter into the protective bonds of a holy Christ-centered marriage. It scoffs at that. And just in case you can't see how this is also a form of idolatry, let me give you some more things that are in the list. Colossians 3, verses 5 to 6. The apostle says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, that is, 
sex outside of a heterosexual marriage. Impurity, lust, which would include porn, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Christians, I would make a very easy wager to bet that our world's obsession with sex and porn and and sexual identity is the biggest idol in modern living today. I don't know if you thought about it this way, but your sexuality is a lordship issue. Will Will Jesus be lord of your body? Will he be lord of your mind and the eyes that you use to look upon sexual images? Will Jesus be lord of not just your body, but also your sexuality, your identity? We see in Israel the connection here between sexuality and idolatry, and even, as we said, child sacrifice. It's still an idol in our culture today. Chapter 24, the judgment, the final judgment on Judah slash Israel is pronounced. In Ezekiel 24, it divides into virtually two equal parts, verses 1 to 14 and 15 to 27. The chapter opens with a parable of a cooking pot, showing that judgments are coming, but Jerusalem, even though it's inevitable, you can't blame your your ancestors for this. Then the hardest part is in the chapter of the second part in in verses 15 to 27, where Yahweh uses Ezekiel's own marriage as a living example, a word picture of what his relationship with Israel is like. Let me pick it up in verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, with one blow I am about to take away the delight of your eyes, your wife. Yet do not lament or weep or shed to any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Keep your turban fastened and your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your mustache or beard uh, or eat the customary food of mourners. In other words, no egg salad sandwiches. So I spoke to the people in mourning. In the morning. And in the evening, my wife died. The next morning, I did as I was commanded. Because this would otherwise seem unjust and cruel... A lot of commentators seem to suggest that maybe Ezekiel's own wife had gotten caught up in idolatry. We're not told one way or the other. It's possible. Regardless, Ezekiel's words, the next morning I did as I had been commanded, should really fashion this, the, the interpretation. Regardless, the imagery is important. Ezekiel is going to experience what Yahweh experiences. And when he brings judgment upon Israel, he's not allowed to mourn. They have been unfaithful. Boy, they've been unfaithful. But he's, they're, not allowed, he, they're not allowed to mourn. I've sat with women whose husbands have been unfaithful. And when the marriage is over, they, they just can't shed a tear anymore. The tears are gone. I think this is where God was at. Israel had been unfaithful for so long, he just couldn't mourn her loss anymore. And yet, as we've been hearing all throughout our series so far, God will yet save a remnant. He will still save those people who do repent and who do not turn to other gods. He will save them. Here's the principles of this chapter, these chapters. Human beings cannot escape sin. Sin will be punished. God is always just in both who he blesses and in whom he punishes. 
we must examine our hearts constantly to determine whether we have become apathetic and lackadaisical towards our own sin and the sin of our land. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up for a second. Well, for the while. And as they're coming up, I want you to consider <coughs> the impact of this message today on communion. We come to the table of the Lord, a table that in so many ways pictures Christ and his sacrifice for our sin. We observe this once a month, some churches every, every Sunday even more than that. But as we observe this meal, we are remembering the Lord's death until He comes, Paul says. And it's a good reminder. But it's also important that we don't become apathetic or lackadaisical towards it. Sometimes we can come to this meal, we can eat the bread, we can drink the cup, we can consider our sin, but maybe we don't even repent of it any, anymore. We just say, oh Lord, I, sorry for my sin. But there is real no heart change. Remember, just as in Ezekiel here, these chapters, sin, sexual sin, idolatry is a lordship issue. When you come to this table by taking this bread and this cup, you are saying, Jesus is Lord of my life. There will be no victory in our lives as believers unless we get that straight. You will not have victory over porn. If Jesus is not Lord of your life, you will not be able to have the power to say no to sin if Jesus is not Lord of your life. You will have an unhappy, unfruitful marriage if Jesus is not Lord of your life. Raising children is a hard task for anyone, but if Jesus is Lord of your life, that will make a difference in how you teach and bring up your kids. Everything that we do, friends, in this life, in this Christian life that that we claim as our own, everything is based on the Lordship of Jesus. And so, yeah, we do this meal once a month, but let us not become lackadaisical or apathetic towards its emblems. This is us saying, yes, Lord, I partner myself to your death. I die to myself. I pick up my cross daily and I follow you. That's what this meal is all about. So I encourage everyone to eat of it. At the Lord's table, Jesus said to all the guys, even Judas, take and eat, all of you. And then he gave reason for it. He blessed each piece, and then they went on to the meal. But don't be a Judas today. Make Jesus Lord of your life. Make Jesus Lord of your life today. And if you've never done that before, I encourage you to do that today in just saying, Lord, I have sinned against you, but I claim your forgiveness because of your cross, your death, and your resurrection. I claim your forgiveness, and I want to live a new life based on the resurrection power of Jesus. And from here on in, I will live as if you are Lord of my life because that's what you will be from here on in. That's all you have to do. And then you become a part of that great tree that was spoken of here by Ezekiel. We become the church under which its branches become shade and shelter for all kinds of birds. We're part of a great family, are we not? A family of faith, but a family of lordship in Jesus. So let's participate in this meal today.
Oh, Lord God. Sometimes you take the most obscure things to get through to me. You've taken this book of Ezekiel and these chapters up until now to reinforce to us and, and Lord, you repeated it often. You are the sovereign Lord. Therefore, you get to make the dictates and the commands of how we are to live. And if we don't like it, tough. But Lord, coming into your lordship and gaining salvation by Jesus, the awesome part is you change our hearts to want these things that you have commanded us. And you give us an urgency and a desire to obey. And so, Lord, we are glad for this word today. As tough as it is, as obscure as it may seem, Lord, you've used the testimony of Israel to speak to us today about lordship. You are sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And we claim you as our own. And we give you and you alone our allegiance today. You are Lord. Amen. Amen.